All right. Well, today we are addressing biblical sexuality and specifically what scripture has to say about homosexuality or being gay. Um, we're going to talk kind of explicitly about some things, so just use some discretion if you have other people who can hear this podcast, younger people specifically. Um, to start into this, I just want to review one thing we talked about last time. We are not a Republican church. We're not a Democrat church. We are a church that cares about the kingdom of God. And this topic is not merely a political issue. It's a moral issue. And the Bible speaks a lot about morality. So we want to know what God has to think about this topic and the future topics that we're going to address. And we want to be on God's side, regardless of where that fits with um, our American political party preference. If we arrive at what scripture arrives at and it lands on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, from where you generally align politically, you have to go as a Christian with scripture. And when you do, won't that be a great display? When we do, it'd be a great display that we're committed to Christ first, not other things of the world first. Um, and then secondly, just a reminder that we need to interact on these topics with respect and with humility. There are some well-intended Christians who are arguing on both sides of this topic. Um, typically, side A is the, are those who argue that God is pleased with or condones homosexual relationships. Side B is uh, the traditional Christian stance that homosexual relationships are sinful. Now, I will say this. Almost all gay-affirming Christians, or side A, are arguing that God condones <clears throat> monogamous, loving, consensual relationships. So there's no Christian who's suggesting that unrestrained multiple partner or, or non-consensual homosexuality is okay. Christians are pretty united that adultery, polygamy, rape are wrong. And uh, no matter what the biological sex who are involved with that is. Uh, so what we're addressing is monogamous, loving, consensual sexual relations between the same sex. That's what side A people are arguing for, that God would condone that. Now, I also want to point out uh, that these are topics that not only affect those outside of the church, but inside. So I really want to try to avoid, and in our discussions after the teachings, avoid saying us and them. Because some of those people who are questioning their sexual identity are us. Uh, one writer, Mark Yarhouse, puts it, these are our people. So if we talk flippantly about legitimate issues people are working through, we're not demonstrating the love of Jesus, and we're condemning ourselves as well. And then a quick note on the whole argument of nature versus nurture. Is being gay something that we're born with or something that is kind of uh, worked into us through society and our upbringing? That may be an interesting topic to discuss and it may be an important, but in a way, um, it, it doesn't matter. Um, again, Mark Yarhouse says, Christianity rejects the idea that our impulses are reliable moral guides. We reject that our impulses are reliable moral guides. The Christian, Mark Yarhouse says, has to look outside of him or herself for direction on how to live. So 
Uh, last thing I want to say is that most of what I share tonight, if not all of it, uh, comes mostly from my class notes from a class I took on this biblical sexuality um, with Dr. Preston Sprinkle um, years ago, probably eight years ago. And so I am totally ripping him off. I'm trying not to use his exact language or plagiarize him, but I'm just giving you fair warning. This information is coming and the even arrangement of it largely from Preston Sprinkle, who has great information on the topic. Now, what we're going to um, do with this topic and we're going to do with the future topics is to see what God has to say about it explicitly. And if we have time, see what he has to say implicitly and also talk briefly about what God doesn't have to say. And then we're going to make some discussions before we even open the scripture. It might be worth making a quick comment in this topic about history. Homosexuality has been around nearly as long as mankind. So there's people in the in the first century of the New Testament and before that who are familiar with the idea of men being attracted and sleeping with men and women with women. Being gay as a, a core identity is new since about the 1950s. It never used to be wrapped up with an identity. So there's not really a Greek or a Hebrew word or term for gay or homosexual as the identity of a person in the time of the Bible, uh, it wasn't an identity yet. It was more about these are, this is something that some people do. And oftentimes it was about masculinity and femininity, but it certainly was familiar in the day. Okay. So homosexuality, there are six passages that may talk explicitly about what we understand as homosexual behavior. The first is in Genesis 19. So you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like to. Genesis 19, we'll start at the beginning of the chapter. Um, the context here is that there has been an outcry that has risen to the Lord about the grave sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are two men described as angels who enter the city of Sodom to kind of evaluate the people of the city to see if there are any righteous people there. And so let's go ahead and read that passage in Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you may please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge, talking about Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house, the angels that is, and with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And then if you're familiar with the story, 
Uh, shortly after that, Lot and his family escape the city, and the Lord rains down um, on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire out of heaven, and Sodom is destroyed. So some kind of interpretation considerations in this. Some say that the sin of Sodom that brought about the destruction may not be what we think it means. Or when the men were desiring to know the angels sexually, that might not mean what we think it means. Um, it, it's not perfectly clear from the story that the men wanted to rape those angels, but it is very likely. I'd turn your attention to Jude chapter or verse 7, which uh, makes it pretty clear, um, among other things in the language that we just won't get into. But even though the story is probably talking about sexual immorality, like we, we commonly read it to, it doesn't answer the question of monogamous, consensual, same-sex relation. This was polygamous, non-consensual relations, and it wasn't even between two human men. It, it, it would be between men and angels. So if you ask your, your gay friends if they think it's okay to gang rape angels, sorry for the bluntness, but they're going to tell you that's not something that they're tempted to do, all right? Is homosexuality a part of it? Well, yeah, it seems to be here, but there's much more going on here that we would all happily condemn. The rape, the unmarried sex, the group sex, sex with angels, which we see in other places, always goes wrong. So maybe this isn't the greatest argument against homosexuality. There's In other places, this is super important too, in other places, Sodom and Gomorrah um, are mentioned and we can look to those and we say, what is the sin of Sodom? Was Sodom destroyed because of their homosexual behavior or, or, or desires? Because that's what the, the signs that you see protesters hold um, that uh, talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and God bringing hell on those who um, are gay. But if we look to the sin of Sodom in other passages in scripture, in Isaiah, um, God condemns Sodom for their external religion, not for sexual immorality. And then in Isaiah 23, God condemns Sodom for adultery and for lying, not for homosexuality. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus sends out the 12, the cities who don't receive the disciples are worse off, Jesus says, than Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe because of their sin of inhospitality, like we see, um, we saw in the Sodom story. And then most strikingly in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, we read this, um, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Okay, this is Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. That might be worth writing down. This was their sin. Okay, what was the sin of Sodom? Here it is. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Arguably, that was the, the gang rape of angels. So I removed them when I saw it, God says. So why was Sodom destroyed? Pride, opulence, lack of generosity. So interesting that this is the first place oftentimes people go in scripture to condemn homosexuality. But 
that's just not a good place to go. There's not a strong case there to show that God is against it here in uh, this this uh, story in the book of Genesis. Um, and everyone holding up those signs that say homosexuals will burn in hell like Sodom and Gomorrah, um, I just say they better watch out because it is much clearer that those cities were destroyed for maybe some of the very sins that the people holding the signs struggle with. Pride, outward religion. It's very ironic. Uh, but the bottom line is not a good place to go if you're trying to prove a biblical stance against homosexuality. In the same way, and I won't go into it, but it's not a good argument uh, for a pro-gay stance or side A to look to David and Jonathan as and say, well, they had a gay relationship, which some would say, but there's good reason to not believe that. Um, the next place that we can go that does specifically talk about uh, homosexual relationships is Leviticus. In Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. You don't need to turn there. It simply says this in 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then in Leviticus 20 verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now this is very straightforward language. To lie with is always a sexual connotation of the Bible. Now, some people will argue that this is specifically only talking about uh, male cult prostitution, but there is little evidence anywhere that that, that even existed at the time in Israel. And um, if, if it did, there's other language that would have been used to describe it than the Hebrew words used here. It's just not a good interpretation to say it's talking about male cult pro prostitution. This is a no qualifications um, condemnation of homosexual acts. It doesn't mention consensual, non-consensual, monogamous, polygamous, religious or not. Regardless of motivation, this law unconditionally condemns homosexual acts. But that was the Old Testament. And people on side A will argue that this was just part of Old Testament law and that was done away with under the New Covenant, right? Like just eating pork and not blending two types of fabric. But we actually do, if you think about it, uphold much of the Old Testament commands. Especially many of the commands that are surrounding those Leviticus 18 through 20 passages. We still uphold the incest. Yeah, it's still wrong. Adultery, still wrong. Child sacrifice. These are all things mentioned in Leviticus 18 through 20. Wrong. Bestiality, theft, lying, oppression. They're all still wrong. So just because we can find one command here and there that no longer need to be upheld, that doesn't necessarily eliminate the rest of the commands unless we have specific reason to do so, like eating pork. So we get to the New Testament and God tells Peter that he can now eat anything. There's no animal that's unclean to eat. So we still uphold Old Testament law in a lot of ways, so long as it's not changed under the new covenant. And as we'll see, same-sex behavior uh, seems also to be prohibited in the New Testament. So turn to Romans chapter 1. This would be a good place to turn. Romans chapter 1. And let's uh, begin in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images result, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. And then the key portion right here is in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he lists a ton of manners of unrighteousness. And though they know not God's righteous decree in verse 32, that those who practice such things and deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, regardless of your view on the topic, Everyone agrees that what's being described in Romans 1 is wrong or is, is sin. So the question comes up, is, well, what is this particular sin? What's the meaning in verses 26 and verses 27 of nature or natural relations or contrary to nature? So you might assume that contrary to nature would mean contrary to how God has designed things, contrary to God's will. But others argue that it means against the norm or in an unusual way or against social custom. So in a world where same-sex behavior is generally viewed as okay, like our world and culture, then it's not contrary to nature, relatively. Some, like Matthew Vines, also argue that it may refer to a heterosexual person who for some reason chooses to behave in a homosexual manner or a homosexual person who chooses to behave in a heterosexual manner. That is to say, um, we shouldn't go against what, how we would normally act or against our nature. Okay. The problem with this is that Paul is clearly using an argument not based on social custom, but an argument for all time. So if you look at the context, he's talking about humanity in general from the beginning of creation, if you see that in verse 20. So nature is the created order of things, how they have always been, and it spans for all of time. And not only that, but Paul is using here in Romans 1 standard language for the day, that contrary to nature, whatever it is in the Greek, many contemporaries outside of Scripture even understood that to mean contrary to the created way. I could provide a list of um, those, those people, the Greek and Jewish quotes from that day, that understand that it doesn't mean social customs, it means to the created way. So he's going along with the common belief and language of his day, that natural relations, the, the created way, or heterosexuality, were broken by sinful people in homosexual relationships. So Romans 1 really is the clearest biblical um, non-condoning or condemnation of the homosexual lifestyle, um, along with many other sins that we see listed in verse 29 to 32. Another place that we can go, there's two more quick ones, in verse, uh, in, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, chapter 9, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 
verse 9. Uh, it says this, or you, do you not know that, in fact, you can turn there if you want, 1 Corinthians 9, ah, I keep saying that, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. It says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, here it is, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, everyone agrees that this is a list of wrong practices or sin. The question is, what's the definition of men who practice homosexuality? Again, there's not a word in the Greek that translates directly homosexual, okay? Um, again, it existed, homosexuality existed as a concept, but not as an identity. So you can't tell it in the, in the ESV or, or most translations, but this is actually two words in the Greek that we have here in the ESV as men who practice homosexuality. It's malakoi and arsenikoitai. Not exactly sure how you say those, but malakoi, or, or yeah, malakoi, the first one, uh, simply means uh, soft men, kind of. Or, or men who kind of looked and dressed and acted in a soft or, or feminine manner. We might say um, feminine, uh, effeminate, feminine. Um, so it's, it's that and arsenakoitai, who uh, that's the word that means, and again, sorry to be graphic, but it's, it's the active partner in same-sex acts, okay? It's the equivalent to the Hebrew word in Leviticus, uh, those two passages that we saw in Leviticus. Um, so when you put those two words together, an effeminate man is kind of um, uh, soft, and the active partner in sexual intercourse between men, we get the ESV's translation, men who practice homosexuality. Or if you see in your ESV note, it says the passive and the active partners in consensual homosexual acts. So there you have it. Some will argue that this is talking about um, pederasty, which is men having sex with like adolescent boys, um, or it's talking about prostitution. The problem is here, Paul had other ways, other Greek words he could have used to better say those things, other Greek vocabulary, but he doesn't use that here. He uses these words. And so this passage is really clearly talking about same-sex behavior similar to how we understand it, okay? Now, I want you to note here, though, that this is talking about the unrighteous, or we could say those who have not received the righteousness of Christ. It's those people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. This isn't talking about Christians who struggle with these sins. Notice there's sins on the rest of the list that we allow Christians to struggle with or to find temptation with, um, and that's fine. But it is the unrighteous. It's those who are not giving themselves fully to the righteousness of Christ who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, um, And then the last passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but it has another list that includes a, a list of the ungodly and sinners. That list includes men who practice homosexuality, among other things. 
That is the, the, the second of the words, arsenakoitai, only is used there. Um, again, it, like this is in a context in First Timothy that Paul is talking about the law, just like in Leviticus it's talking about the law. So it's e an even clearer connection that we're talking about the same thing that the Old Testament is talking about. Um, and again here, it's clearly talking about unbelievers um, or those who are not repentant. So both First Corinthians and First Timothy continue the same outlook on homosexual or same-sex behavior as the Old Testament, that it's against God's will, that it's characteristic of non-believers, and so it's sin, um, along with the Romans passage as well. Uh, one of the most common objections to the side B um, or traditional view is that, well, Jesus never mentions homosexuality. Um, three things uh, to say about that, maybe a couple more. First of all, that's true. Jesus doesn't directly mention that act, uh, but he doesn't mention lots of things. Jesus doesn't mention bestiality. He doesn't mention incest. He doesn't mention rape. And so does that really just toss those out as things that are just open for discussion? Um, also, as Christians, we accept the whole counsel of Scripture all of the New and the Old Testament. It's all breathed out by God, whether Jesus said it or Moses said it or Luke said it or Paul said it, okay? So we have to go with everything that we see in Scripture. And then thirdly, Jesus was a Jew. And in his context, Judaism, it universally condemned same-sex behavior. Even in Jewish writing outside of the Bible, it condemns homosexual behavior. Jesus' Bible, you could say, condemned same-sex behavior, the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures. So Jesus speaks out against certain aspects of Judaism, but he never speaks out against same-sex behavior. Jesus came not to eliminate the law, but to fulfill it, we read in the book of Matthew and I believe other places. Um, Jesus gives the true meaning of the law. So when Jesus goes against Old Testament law, he specifies it, and then he explains a, a better understanding, a clearer understanding of it. And oftentimes he either goes more liberal or more lenient, like on the dietary laws, and often he goes more conservative or gives a stricter meaning to it. When it comes to sexuality, Jesus doesn't go more lenient. He actually goes more conservative on the issue than his, his Jewish roots. He's more strict than Moses on divorce in Matthew chapter 19. He's more strict in his definition on adultery, that it even includes lust, we read in, in Matthew 5. So Jesus, um, that he doesn't mention same-sex behavior it kind of actually works against the point that that person's trying to make because if in fact Jesus had something to change from the Jewish assumptions, he would have said it, but he didn't mention it because he didn't have to. He wasn't departing from those roots. And we could even infer from the kind of trajectory of his sexual ethic that if anything, he's becoming more strict, not more lenient in regards to sexuality. So, just kind of in summary of these passages, this is a super quick, obviously, flyby. There's, there's much, much more to say. But same-sex behavior in Scripture is rarely spoken of, just these few times we looked at in 20 minutes. But it's always viewed 
in the negative. It's always viewed as sin, and it scripture really doesn't lack any clarity on the topic. By the way, this is a the historically Christian church view on the topic. It's only in very recent decades that people are kind of questioning this and reading other interpretations into the scripture, mostly based on um, our, our cultural modern understanding of sexuality. But I think an honest look at these passages rule out those interpretations. Now, uh, I said we look at the explicit, implicit things that, that scripture has to say. So implicitly, we can learn some things from marriage. Let me just go there very briefly. Genesis chapter 2 is kind of the undisputed foundation of God's plan for marriage, his pattern for all marriage. He says it's not good for man to be alone. When he says that, he could have just started to make more men out of the dirt, but instead he makes someone who is the same but different than Adam out of Adam's side. He says, I'll make a helper fit for him. Fit for also could be translated um, as corresponding to. There's two Hebrew words used there. One of them means as or like, and the other means opposite or against. So it's these two Hebrew words used side by side. This is the only place in scripture, a helper fit for him. So like, but opposite. So a helper who's the same, but different. Very interesting how that's posed, but very important for our discussion. And he goes on to say that the two will be made one flesh. Now one flesh, it generally in scripture means kinship, like not sexually. Um, Obviously, that's more of the meaning of Genesis 2.24 uh, that, that Paul is referring to when he talks about marriage in Ephesians 5. But it also does mean sexually, uh, like in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, when we're talking about uh, men and women. And so marriage, by God's design, is the creating of a new family by the coming together of two sexually different persons, a male and a female. And Matthew 19, Jesus confirms God's created intent in lifelong marriage between a male and a female. In Ephesians 5, which harkens back to Genesis 2, uh, Paul sticks with the union of, of differences between husbands and wives. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, it speaks clearly about marriage between a husband and a wife. Song of Songs is an great appreciation of marriage and even some of the sexual differences between the him and the her in that song. And so um, so we see this, that marriage is clearly intended and designed for um, a, a union, lifelong union between two biologically different or sec different sexed people, male and female. And um, I'll add on top of that, that the Bible sanctions sex only within marriage. I don't have time to go through that, but that can easily be developed in scripture. Sex is only for within the bounds of marriage. So by implication, and here's I'm, I'm reading between the lines here to, to discuss our topic of homosexuality. If sex is only for marriage and marriage is only for male and female, then sex is only sanctioned by God for male and female within marriage. Okay. Lastly, real quick, oh, I've gone long. What the Bible doesn't say. First of all, the Bible doesn't say that homosexual temptation is sin. We have to distinguish temptation from 
behavior. So somebody might be sexually attracted to others of the same sex, but like with any temptation, that person may choose to walk in obedience to scripture through that temptation. We all are tempted in many ways, right? And by the grace of God, we choose in those moments not to sin. There's plenty of people in the church with same-sex attractions who are choosing to walk obediently with the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, another thing that I would like to say that scripture does not say is that homosexuality should be given particular focus as a sin. As we've seen, it's only mentioned five or six times in the entire Bible. At local church fellowship, we don't address same-sex behavior often in our teaching. I can only think of one other time years and years ago in L.A., um, because the Bible doesn't often teach it, and we just teach what the Bible has to say. We have a lot of other topics and a lot of other types of sin to talk about that Scripture teaches much more thoroughly about. In Leviticus um, and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and Romans, we see, hey, homosexuality, this is in a list, a long list of other sin, okay? So what are we doing focusing on it? And then another thing that I'd like to say is not in Scripture is that homosexuality is, is kind of the scarlet A, right? Instead, um, homosexuality, it, 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 it's one of many sinful lifestyles that the Lord can and does redeem. Such were some of you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. But he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. For those with same-sex attractions to live obediently doesn't necessarily mean to become heterosexual, but it might mean living in a, in a chaste life. But the Spirit of God is able to do that in the believer. Okay, And then just one final thought. Um, kind of pastorally here, we have drawn so much attention as, as the church to the sinfulness, quote unquote, of this sin, I think to the neglect of other rampant sin. What if we concerned ourselves also with some of the many other sins that we see in those lists? Romans 1 says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Does anybody struggle with desiring what other people have? It says they're full of envy. Does anybody struggle with jealousy, listening, strife? Anybody struggle with, with quarreling? They're gossips. Gosh, how easy we can overlook some sin and focus in on another. And we tend to overlook the sin in our own lives. Slanderers. You ever say anything about somebody that's that's insulting? Disobedient to parents? I mean, come on. Look at what's in these lists. And how about those actual named sins of Sodom in Ezekiel 16? Pride? Excess of food? Prosperous ease? Not aiding the poor and the needy? God forgive us when we look down our nose at people who are really no different than ourselves. 
we all need washing, sanctification, the justification of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now we'll go to our discussion.